I'm James McConaughey. I'm Andrew Wycliffe. And I'm Brendan Pollock. And this is Podcast 60 on the Sunset Strip. This is not going to be a very good show tonight. <laughs> and I think you should change the channel. And so, who wants to be the one to explain to our, uh, I guess the word would be audience, what exactly this podcast is going to be? Um, well... It, it it was your it's your brainchild so uh, why don't you start this <laughs> off? Ooh, that's that's a terrifying statement. Okay, so um, basically, I am fascinated with uh, Studio Sixty on the Sunset Strip. I'm actually totally fascinated by like one season failure TV shows as a rule, like just TV shows that never got to grow and change. Just like a one thing forever. And Studio 60 is absolutely one of the most fascinating to me. And I just like, I just thought, you know, I'm, I'm having fun with my X-Files reviews, so why don't I create a podcast where I talk about Studio 60 for, what is it, like 22 episodes of the show they have? 22 episodes, yeah. And uh, these two people were kind enough to, to join me on this quest. Uh, so yeah, uh, well, I'll just say um, I, I I have a, a I don't know a relationship with Aaron Sorkin. Uh, I used to really really like Aaron Sorkin's stuff, and then um, and then I realized what an awful person he was, <laughs> uh, and kind of de- just really detest him now, uh, and a lot of his work. Um, I still have a I still have a soft spot in my heart for Studio 60 though because uh it's bad but it's not it's not like morally bad in the ways that a lot, I think a lot of his other other work is. Uh this is more uh fun bad. <laughs> so I'm I'm excited to talk about this. Yeah, I, I don't really have that much experience with Aaron Sorkin. I've seen like like two episodes of the West Wing, like the ones that everyone says that you have to see—the one with the funeral and the one with the big map. Those are the two that I've seen. And fun, fun story. So when I was in film school, uh, we were having a screenwriting class, and they showed us a clip from The Social Network. And I swear to God, this story is true. So we're watching this clip from The Social Network, and this teacher pauses it and says, "Okay, so what's wrong with this scene?" And one guy says, well, nobody really talks like that, you know, that fast and using those really big words. And my teacher points straight at me and goes, James does. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I actually really do like The Social Network. I think it's a really good movie. But I also think that Aaron Sorkin, like most creators, does need someone like David Fincher in there who is going to listen to your ideas and say, that's a good idea, we're doing that, or no, that's stupid, we're not doing that, you know? Yeah, uh, it, everyone always needs that person to to edit their work, mm-hmm. but um, uh, as we'll see in uh, Studio 60, the... Uh, the show that has not only not just one but two Aaron Sorkin self-insert characters. Uh, Aaron Sorkin can do it all himself. <laughs> so, sorry, 
Now, some of that I do think we should wait, though. But I think some of that is supposed to be the director, the Tommy Schlammy, the guy who sort of defined the West Wing style and directed at least the first one of this. I swear that when everybody just assumed that the Matthew Perry character was the stand-in for Aaron Sorkin, it's like his drug somebody's drug problem is Tommy Schlammy's too. Like it's not just Aaron Sorkin and Matthew Perry both having drug problems. Tommy Schlammy apparently did yeah, too. I, I confess <laughs> I don't know how I don't know much about Aaron Sorkin's personal life. Um in general, I find that kind of stuff just kind of interesting. So I don't know how much of, like, the 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 personal life stuff is based on his real life. I, I'm given I'm given to understand that Sarah Paulson's character is based on. Oh God, what is her name? Uh, Sarah Paulson's character is based on Kristen Chenoweth, I think. Kristen Chenoweth. Yeah, I. I meant to uh, re- do a bit more research and uh, be more prepared for this, and actually have 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 my uh, list of Aaron Sorkin parallels uh, well researched instead of just sort of half remembered. Uh, but I'm a piece of shit, so I didn't do that, <laughs> and uh, you get the half remembered version instead. I very intentionally didn't do any research. So, uh, how about you, Andrew? What's your what's your relationship with? Uh, Aaron Sorkin, the savior of TV. I I am I I, I join this as the Aaron Sorkin apologist. Um, oh, it is based on Kristen Chenoweth. I didn't watch West Wing long enough for her to show up. So uh, yeah, I mean, I watched the first couple seasons of West Wing uh, when it was on, maybe the first three, and then I fell off when I went to college and never finished it because he got busted for coke or whatever he got busted for and they threw him off the show and so i was excited when studio 60 came on because um i've been a sarah paulson fan forever and uh you know i've always i've always stood by the idea that matthew perry could at some point deliver and bradley whitford so yeah i was excited for studio 60 i don't remember if i watched all I mean, I know I watched the first one, but I might have not watched the series until it came out on DVD. In fact, now that I say that, that sounds right. Like, I just marathoned it when the DVD Mm -hmm. came out. Um, Since then, the only thing I've seen is Steve Jobs. I mean, I saw the first season of uh, The Newsroom, and then I haven't seen any of the movies except Steve Jobs. So, I've, I've been on a unintentional Sorkin oh, sabbatical is, for the Steve last. Jobs. I actually did I actually really dig Steve Jobs as well. Like, okay, so I guess if if um, Brandon is our anti-Sorkin and you're our Sorkin apologist, I guess I'm sort of agnostic. Because um, I really do think, like, oh man, Studio 60 is so much. But I did really like The Social Network. <laughs> I do really like Steve Jobs. Um, I think you could stand to hate its subject a little bit more um but i think that about basically every biopic i've seen except for i tanya <laughs> so i don't know i guess we'll find out how i feel about it now that i'm 30 <laughs> I, I first watched this show like back when i was really into watching media that was supposed to be bad 
I was like 21. Back when the world sort of made sense. So, uh, where do we want to start? Uh, let's start at the beginning, uh, the very beginning. Um, I, I have, I felt, I have a note here that I just want to share because I think it, uh, puts everything in that comes later into a weird context, uh, which is at the very beginning, um, uh, what's his, what's the, what's his character's name? Uh, the guy who, um, I should probably pull up, oh my God. I should probably pull up a character list, yeah. Because I don't... Yeah. Wes Mandel. Uh, hang on. This is... <clears throat> I'm going to be... <laughs> yeah, I'm pulling up the cast list so that I can uh, uh, pretend I remember things. Uh, okay, so uh, Simon Stiles, uh, D.L. Hughley's character, okay. starts out. Uh, he's like It fades in on him talking to the audience, and it's very subtle, but he says that uh the show is uh 20 years old um which like the way that they treat it like it's this i mean i guess 20 years is a long time for a tv show but i don't know later they treat it like it's this like institution of comedy that has stood for time immemorial and it's like wait what it's it's only 20 years old it's only like half as old as SNL. Yeah. Why? <laughs> what? Yeah, that's that's sort of the thing. Like, so the show is really built. Like, you can tell this from the moment it starts when like they're saying like, oh, and then the announcer is gonna say live from Studio Sixty. Like, okay, so it's an SNL analog. Uh, it, like right from the jump. And so one thing I did do like one summer when I was like completely out of work is I blew through every single season of SNL they have on Hulu. And my, like, official, like, statement on SNL is that I think that everyone overstates its importance because the bad seasons are never as bad as people seem to think and the good seasons are never that great. Oh, yeah. And, like, you know, uh, I don't want to talk too much shit about SNL because, like, uh, hey, making a making a show every week uh, is not easy. Oh, it's a nightmare. But yeah, it's that that's a like a living nightmare. They you finish the show, you finish one week's show, and then you're pretty much just like immediately into writing the next week's show. Uh, I don't know how anyone can do that without going insane. Let alone do that and produce a watchable product. Uh, but yeah, it, it's like it's not that good. It's <laughs> it's friendly background noise. Mm-hmm. Well, and I mean that's I don't know if we're jumping ahead, but you get the feeling that this is just about Sorkin getting to come back to network television and um being hailed as the savior of television. I mean, it it really is just the voices in his head written for different characters playing out. Like if it ended like St. Elsewhere, where you find out that it's all just in Aaron Sorkin's head, like that'd be perfect. If it's Herman's head, you know, like it'd be perfect. 
but the thing with the comedy thing is, yeah, the show had only been on since the 80s. It's the flagship of this network that seemingly is like a fifth network, but maybe is like more of a Fox analog than it, anything It read else. to me a lot like an NBC but, analog, frankly, but maybe it's a Fox analog. It, yeah, it, it's supposed to directly be an NBC one because it's Sorkin and then Amanda Peet's character is based on that person at NBC. Um, I can't remember, but whoever Jamie. Oh, no, it's actually ABC. Jamie Tarser's. Um, but this whole idea that comedy was going to shape the like globe or the national conversation like what what are we talking about are we talking about like dana carvey doing bush because that's like the biggest crossover that snl ever had and so it's just like he they're making this show like it's going to be as important as uh what's his face in the 50s um laughing the blacklist guy but yeah i mean then there's also we're going to have to get into the whole thing with the um, love of classical comedy that one would assume they don't actually have on SNL. So, so one of the problems that I always, we're getting a little bit too much into SNL, but it is something that I think is worth addressing in the way they talk about sketch comedy. So when you actually look at the really good sketch comedy shows, like the consistently good ones, like uh, Fry and Laurie or uh, Monty Python and they're, or in Living Color, like, the really good ones, they're based around, like, one or two people's comedic sensibilities. Like, these are the jokes they think are funny, even if they've got a bigger cast than that. Right. And I think that's the problem that the S- problem yeah. SNL always has, is that it's got, like, 30 different writers. So even if it does want to say something, it's never going to say anything consistently because it's got 30 different writers, and they're all just trying to impress uh, Lorne Michaels. Who I consistently confuse with Lauren Green. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, yeah, so there is the SNL thing right up. I guess let's, let's steer us back to, we haven't even gotten to the network. Oh, yeah. oh my God, yeah. <laughs> we, we just, Im- we immediately we're, we're derailed, derailed on the first on the sentence of the show. Okay. Um, uh, the... All right. See <laughs> so, yeah. I'll do Wes Mandel then. Okay, so Wes Mandel is Judd Hirsch, who at this time was on Numbers, I think, or was about to be on Numbers. And he never shows up on the show again, even though he's the Lauren Green... uh, No, not Lauren Green. Lauren Michaels (laughs) stand-in. And the show opens with him getting yelled at by Michael Stute... What's his name? Uh, the, The network guy. Um... Yeah, the network guy, but he, another he went character on to be who in never that. shows up again. Yeah, he never shows up again because he went and did the Coen Brothers movie. <laughs> but he's the standards and practice guy who also is going to disappear. Like that department's not in the first seven episodes. <laughs> but um, he, he they're arguing about a sketch. A sketch we never get to see, by the way. Judd Hirsch, which we never ever are going to get to see, which is probably good because the potential comedy of studio 60s what they were able to go after easily because obviously sorkin's no good at writing no. sketch comedy um what 
and I say that liking him. Like, uh, he's desperate for to try to be funny. But so Judd Hirsch goes out and interrupts the opening sketch, which is a Bush Cheney one, and tells everybody to turn off their TVs because they're watching crap. Because you know the Friday night comedy sketch show isn't edgy anymore and like this is the end of television and they should go do something better and it's it's making us stupid and it's making us mean that remote in your hand is like a crack pipe (laughs) what's what's amazing is is that this is like what 2006 like this was just at the start of reality like if he just waited a few more years i feel like yeah we're in peak tv now it's he, he wouldn't have been able to be as classy with it, but a little bit later he might have gotten a few more seasons. The, I, I won't uh, I don't want to like dive too much down this rabbit hole, but I, I think it's very uh, funny and ironic that uh, here is like for all intents and purposes, the thesis statement of the entire show uh, just sort of writ large with this big speech. Uh, and it's like, that entertainment isn't isn't serving us anymore and it's like you know it's failing us and it's making us into worse people it's you know it's making us stupid and it's making us mean and that that is my biggest complaint about the west wing which is uh aaron sorkin's like you know his the thing he's most well known for is like yeah there's like a really uh there's a really good case to be made for uh, the West Wing kind of being directly responsible for a lot of the bad shit that happens uh, in reality later. Uh, and uh, yeah, like I said, I don't want to dive too much down that hole, but I think it's very funny that here's Aaron Sorkin sort of uh, complaining about this thing that he has done <laughs> uh, and not even realizing it. I mean, so you're you're totally right that this opening monologue is the the thesis statement of the show. And I, I totally forget how much they they stick to that actually being the point of the show, like actually make that the central theme. But all I could think watching it this time around was, yeah, I saw Network 2, Aaron. And that's before they spend like a solid well, two minutes just name dropping yeah. Network. We... <laughs> yeah, do we, do we want to just... Uh jump ahead uh for a second to that scene where the the next day when this shows up on the news every single person is name dropping the network it's just aaron sorkin desperately trying to lampshade that i know that i know i'm stealing from the from a network but if you noticed i'm stealing from network that makes you smart because you know what network is (laughs) I'm trying to remember on newsroom when he has the same freak out, do they comment on it being like network? Um, does it... I don't think so, but yeah, you're right. Uh, newsroom also does start with a, a practically identical. Um... It's yeah. It's kind of too bad. He hasn't gotten to do it again. Like how Paul Schrader has his endings with shootouts. Like, it'd be nice if Aaron Sorkin got to keep refining his white man losing it at the state of uh, the world Although, monologue. It is kind of, it is uh, kind of fun that he, he's having this rant about how awful everything is, 
in 2006. And one line that I wrote down in my notes from the uh, rant, and I mentioned this before we went on the air, is people are having contests to be like Donald Trump. Oh. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yep. Uh, it, that was, it, uh, yeah. It was a better I, I time. Think, <laughs> was it? There, there is going to be... Uh, it's not in this episode, but there are going to be some other cringe, major cringe moments. If, as if Aaron Sorkin, you know, was this before or after he single-handedly fixed the WGA writer strike because he was one of the wealthy writers? Oh, my God. There's some story about that where he, like, the strike went on for however long, and then he got together with whoever else the uh, – top paid writers were and they were just like okay we need to stop this and like yeah uh that's that's actually that's one of the reasons i hate aaron sorkin as a person uh during the the writer strike he was uh like on tv giving interviews that were like well if people want to get paid more uh they should just be better writers i'm i'm paid more and i'm a good writer so people should just be like me. And, and did, any, <laughs> like, did any of has... did any of the people who were interviewing everyone tell him to shut the hell up? Uh, unfortunately, not. Uh, yeah, for for as much of a like a liberal darling as he is, he has. Um, I mean, he he has neoliberal uh, values. He has. He can't see beyond himself and his money, and he has no sort, no sense of class solidarity or just any solidarity, as far as I can tell. Now, how old is how old is Aaron Sorkin? He's um fifty eight. Wow, that's like shit. Um, so is he an old Gen Xer or is he a young? He is. He is the oldest Gen Xer. Which makes perfect sense for his, yeah, his, yeah, that... yeah, yeah. I mean, he's right there. Um, yeah, so I mean, there's so much with this episode. We, I mean, it, it's so weird. We probably like, need to like break yeah. it out and. Well, it, it's so weird because I was thinking like, because... there's, there's so much stuff that I want to talk about. But there's also, like, when you actually boil down the actual events of the episode, very little happens in this episode. Yeah. Right. So it takes place over the span of 90 minutes to two hours, too. Like, it Mm -hmm. is pretty much in real time, which is a late Writers Guild award show. Um, Because this is the one where, so it opens at the studio and then it cuts to introducing Amanda Peet as the new president of the net of, of programming. They never really explain that the chairman of the board is Jordan's boss, but she, and they're both directly involved in television production. So it just seems weird that Steven Weber is so involved in this stuff, but let's just, yeah, yeah I, I, if I had to guess, I mean, I've never worked in TV, obviously, but if I had to guess, I'd guess that the president of programming's involvement in what goes on 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 SNL every week is next to nothing. 
Oh, right. Yeah. In fact, I mean, I'd also bet that at least, and, at least um, one president of programming in the last 10 years has said, like, oh, SNL is tonight, and they've gone, wait, we're still airing that? So, I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I think it's just, I think it's the same way that, like, I think it's the same way that, like, 30 Rock just has Liz going up to Jack Donaghy's office every single episode. Because if you didn't, <laughs> there wouldn't be a show. So I'll, I can live with that. I, oh, yeah. And I mean, sorry. I was gonna say I also really I think I think it's really funny how everyone is so concerned about the you know they're all so concerned about the West Mandel speech and it's like I think it, in reality it would be like oh good uh, people are paying attention to us like these these <laughs> sorts of people would be like like they'd be like you know any any news is good or like you know any attention is good attention. And mm-hmm. who cares if he's saying that it sucks? It's gonna make people turn in to check it out, check it out, and see if right. it sucks. Like everyone, see if Judd hurt. It's it's such a, yeah, it's such a wrong-headed uh, like reaction to this sort of thing. So we we should make clear because they I don't recall if they really dance around this until the final moments, but like the reason the sketch got cut that Judd Hirsch is pissed off about is. It, they thought it would be offensive to Christians, but everyone thinks it's a really great sketch. And then at the end, it turns out that like the the Aaron Sorkin analog wrote it before he got kicked off the show years ago. Uh, yes, the the fabled sketch, Crazy Christians, oh aka uh, placeholder name. Change this later. Ah. <laughs> uh. God, Aaron Sorkin, what are you doing? <laughs> but yeah, so I mean, Stephen Weber, Amanda Peet, they sort of introduce that they're going to do this. She's got this plan for taking over Studio Sixty that everything just aligned that she's got this way that she can do it, <laughs> and then I mean, it's like. Some of it is Aaron Sorkin kind of blowing up the idea of, you know, television executives as decisive, you know, people of action who can do things. And, you know, they facilitate creativity, you know, better than anybody else. It's, it's when you're watching it and you think about how people always talk about how, of course, the movie about Hollywood's going to win some Oscars because Hollywood wants to see them that way. And not that they're just a, peop- a bunch of monsters who enabled Harvey Weinstein and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Like, <laughs> that's very much what this is. But, like, yeah, I, I think that I think that the, the problem, the, we- the the show sort of falls into. And I think that the West Wing, from what I've seen of it, also kind of falls into this is that it has setups for it could be really darkly satirical about this, but it's also just a little bit too reverent to ever be nasty in the way it would need to be. Like, honestly... The, oh, yeah. I mean, it's, the, yeah. There's a joke right at the That's beginning a, of the show and, about a sketch called Peripheral Vision Man, which is actually just an incredibly mean joke at the expense of SNL, but then they have to be like, but we know it sucks. <laughs> no, I, I was trying to figure out if if Peripheral Vision Man is supposed to be a an analog to a specific uh, SNL sketch because 
unfunny SNL sketch that spins off and becomes its own TV show. Uh, spoilers for later down the oh, line. Oh yeah, that with does Rick happen. Vision Man. Uh, there's a, a number of sh- uh, SNL sketches that fit into that category. Um, and I was trying to figure out, like, is this just in general, or is this like a specific one that Aaron Sorkin has an axe to grind with? I mean, I think it's supposed to be is just it... sort of a general parody. Um, if I had to like is... nail down one. I think, I feel like, I don't recall if we ever see any of it, but I feel like what we saw of it kind of makes me think like it's a mix between the Coneheads and the ambiguously gay duo. Yeah. Yeah, I was trying to, Coneheads was the one that kept coming to mind, but I couldn't like, I couldn't think of any like specific reason that it would be Coneheads. Because Coneheads got a movie. probably just like a generic yeah which <laughs> probably just a generic jab at how every every sketch from snl that spins off into its own thing uh is a disaster hey there's one there are two exceptions well almost blues every, brothers yeah, and are, wayne's world are exceptions are the exceptions and i haven't seen mcgruber but i'm and i'm not going to and you can't make me oh uh and before we get too far away from it uh there is uh i I have I have to get out my axe and grind my axe for against Aaron Sorkin. Grind away. Um, when when Jordan is introduced, uh, the scene where she's introduced starts. They're they're at this dinner. So they're you know they're at this dinner where uh, all the network heads are come have come together to congratulate her because you know she's she's been hired and she starts on Monday, and there is a just. This scene is so fucking hack, it, like, makes my teeth hurt. Like, it opens up with, um, what's his name, the the head of the network, uh, just reading off Jordan's resume. Oof. Like, how do I introduce this character? Uh, oh, I know, I'll just have someone ex- just, like, vomit out exactly what she is and what she's done. <laughs> like... Do I do I establish her through her actions and her words? No, I just have a character just vomited out. And okay, so this is like another Aaron. This is uh, add this to my list of things I dislike about Aaron Sorkin. Um, Sorkin is a like he's almost like a like a a parody of the like coastal elite he's he is kind of like obsessed with the whole um like intellectual elitism and he like is very into like um i don't know how to describe it but like people proving their worth through their like connections to the um to the old establishments so like by having jordan's like by reading out jordan's resume and like kind of establishing that she's like oh she's you know she's she's one of us she has all these like she's she's got this whole uh back like she has a background that proves she's uh, good and smart uh she didn't just come out of nowhere but then there's this like weird bit later that i don't know how to i don't know what to think of it where jordan thanks the caterers and then later gets told that she's not supposed to thank the caterers so it's like yeah i didn't get that jordan is 
Yeah, it's like he wants to kind of establish her as like a like an everyman, I guess, where she's like, "Oh, she is she's of the she's of the intellectual elite, but maybe not all the way because she doesn't like she doesn't know the the secret code of uh you know, how uh, of of etiquette." She doesn't know how to be enough of an elitist. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, because she's Sorkin too. That's like, <laughs> yeah. Do, do we, all, I mean, that's like every character it's just, is there in Sorkin. Every single character is when you know Stephen Weber is getting in a good line at her expense. That's Aaron Sorkin sticking it to somebody. But when she's like telling him that her you know virtue will overcome, that's Aaron Sorkin sticking it to somebody else. Like. Yeah. It really does just play like a like you know Aaron Sorkin dropping acid while isolated. <laughs> like god knows what he's going to come up he should come up god. with something. I'm just going to say it. This would be amazing. This is the it's, perfect time. I, Aaron Sorkin to write something else. I think else. that the other problem that you see and we're, you know we're mentioning Aaron Sorkin so much and I think you know if you aren't familiar with the show that can seem unfair because you're like, well, mo- movies and TV are collaborative. There is not a single episode of this show no. he did not write. His name is on yeah. every and, single episode. You, even, you you even see that later. Uh, spo- uh, again, I'm, I'm trying to not draw too much of the future episodes into it. But, like, yeah, later you see, like, Matt is just, like, writing the entire show by himself. Oh, my God. And... Uh, oh, from what there's, I there's there's this from what I understand, that's how he wrote a lot of the West Wing too. Was just like he had a writer's room, he basically threw out everything they wrote and just did it, like kept rewriting all the stuff himself for like the uh, until he got fired. So, uh, but like the interesting thing about Studio Sixty um, is, and yeah, this is going to get ahead to other stuff and let's move on to Matt and Danny, but it is going to be Aaron Sorkin telling on himself in the moment quite a bit to the point that it's like the Orville where Seth MacFarlane's like, Hey, maybe we shouldn't make jokes about marginalized people and we should think about their feelings. And, you know, let's have 45 minutes where everybody's really sad about this. And, Forget that, you know, I fucking make Family Guy. Like, what, what the fuck? <laughs> no, like, that's, I do really it's love, just like, like, it's like that's media the problem. which can be traced back to one person that much. Because it's, because yeah, they always yeah. tell on themselves when they do that. Like, you look at some, like, the ultimate example is The Room. And I know that's an extreme example, but you watch The Room after having read The Disaster Artist, and you're like, oh my god, Tommy Wiseau is just telling on himself so much this in this movie like he is telling you how he sees women and how he sees relationships every single second this is weird so yeah so, so let's get to matt let's get to matt and um albie danny 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 matt, matt albie and danny trip yeah so this is it's it picks him up at the wga awards where uh, Matthew Perry is going to win. Matthew Perry playing Matt is going to win for um, writing a movie that Danny directed. So at this point, there are no real analog. Like, these are analogs in a way. But, yeah, you know, Aaron Sorkin wasn't making movies at this point. <laughs> um, 
Tommy Schlammy's never directed an Aaron Sorkin feature either. Like when Aaron Sorkin was trying to get uh, Steve Jobs made, he didn't go to Tommy Tommy Schlammy to be like, yeah, let's Cause, do. And and because I'm trying to remember what movie he made a couple years ago, um, Molly's Game. It was Sorkin. Um, yeah, and th- that was the. First and you look at that, and that has right? all like I saw that and. It had all of the problems that like his move his writing has that like the social network and Steve Jobs didn't because he didn't have someone there. Like I think that he realized after Studio Sixty that when he makes a movie, he has to have someone like Danny Boyle or like um David Fincher who is a strong enough director and a well known enough director to go, No, I'm pulling rank, that's stupid. And again, I think that everyone needs that. It's not me just, yeah, it's not yeah. me just trashing him, but I think that with Molly's game, he's like, no, I can do this. Yeah, everyone needs that. Like, uh, just to I mean, pull another random example out of a hat. Uh, uh, Hideo Kojima. Um, thinking thinking about his work a lot lately. Now, yeah, the first few Metal Gear, uh, or the first like half of the Metal Gear Solid series, really, really good. And then he's on his own. And it's garbage. Mm-hmm. Everyone needs an editor. <laughs> it absolutely is, yeah. And so, so yes, let's get back to Matt and Danny. Sorry, I, got, I derailed us. Okay, yeah, Matt and Danny. Yeah, you know, no. So, uh, okay, I'll do the run through because I I just watched it okay. again yesterday. Okay, so we open with on the table the writer types, including a couple people who are kind of cameos. Like I recognized a couple of them from being sort of network sitcom co-stars during this era. One of the guys from, um, shit, what's that? Um, John Cusack movie. Uh, the one with high fidelity. Yeah. One of the guys that works, not Jack black is at the table with them. So they're trying to, cast with familiar faces even though we don't spend any time with any of the supporting cast or the people who aren't going to be coming back basically like there's a lot to talk about with the pilot versus the production history of studio 60 would actually be a really interesting thing because of all the changes they make throughout but okay here we go so they talk about how matt broke up with harriet who works on the studio 60 we've already met her or we, we haven't, haven't. Um, we they've she, talked we about her though we haven't met her but they, they talk, talk about, about all her. of the cast in the first episode we meet her a little bit right at the very end and we don't we see but we don't meet any of the rest of the cast really and yeah we, we get a and, little bit of them but yeah nowhere near as much as harriet yeah so Matt went, Matt's on painkillers because they're making fun of Matthew Perry and his painkillers. And because House was really big at this moment. Which, because they're just like, what the hell? Like, Matthew Perry's willing to do this because he's worth $60 million, so he doesn't give a <laughs> shit. Um, and then you meet, what's his face? Danny Tripp, Bradley Whitford is like, so Matt's supposed to be the unstable one and Danny's supposed to be the like responsible yeah. one, I guess we'd yeah. say. Well, I feel like they upend that by the end of the episode. 
Yeah, but it, yes, they but do. They, but, but they also sort of played off as like, oh, that was unexpected that it went this way. So I think it, they also have to flip that back later because of Matthew Perry, yeah. how he learned to act between the pilot and the <laughs> third episode. But um, so okay, so Matthew Perry wins while the agent played by donna murphy who's not in the show enough but she's in this episode she comes up tells bradley whitford he needs to you know something's happened at studio 60 and he needs to go and right before he walks off shot he's like i need to see tape and you're just like i forgot that bradley whitford wasn't always always a reliable actor like this is his first lead after West Wing. That was like the big thing is, is this is Matthew Perry's show after Friends and Bradley Whitford doing a lead after being supporting on West Wing mm-hmm. and breaking out. So it's like it takes him a while to get comfortable delivering the scene ending zingers. We, we, uh, um, wait, okay. before, before we move off this scene, uh, there's I, I've got another Aaron Sorkin nit to pick. Um, so in the West Wing, uh, there is basically one joke that gets repeated over and over and over again, mm-hmm. uh, but in different forms, which is, you know, character one says, this thing's going to happen. Character two says, there's no way that thing can happen. Character one says, eh, are you sure? And then character two says, no, there's no way. And then the thing happens. Ha ha ha. Big, big laugh all around. Um, so, yeah, that happens here. Uh, to his credit, you know, it only happens once in this comedy show. But uh, every time that joke happens, I'm going to be pointing it out because uh, Aaron Sorkin's a hack and he he loves this joke. For uh, yeah, Mojo. but it happens. <laughs> it it happens specifically here when um, Matt's up on stage accepting the award, and he says, "I'd like to thank." Bradley Whitford, who's uh, never not, not been there for me, and then he has them move the spotlight to his table, and he's already walked off because of the crisis at Studio 60. <laughs> Which, to be fair, uh, the first time you tell this joke, it's actually yeah, that's funny. a that's not a, that's a cute moment. <laughs> um, I, yeah, I will. It's funny. It, yeah, uh, have they? Est- it works because it's the only time it happens. Have they established at this point that, like, I feel like we're getting our scenes mixed up. Cause I feel like first they say like Judd Hirsch is fired because, um, he went on a, I was going to say crazy rant, but honestly, it's not that crazy. It's kind of angry, slightly annoyed rant on live TV. And there, and, um, what's her name? Uh, the, uh, Jordan, Jordan. Amanda Pete's character is like, Oh, I want to hire back these two dudes. Um, Danny and Matt, who who were fired from Studio 60 years ago. Uh, I, I don't recall the exact timeline. I feel like the timeline's kind of loose. I think it's... Yeah, it's... it's they said yeah, I think you're... two years ago, but it they it it's weird and loose where, like, sometimes they're acting like it just happened and sometimes they're acting like it was a longer time ago. Mm-hmm, yeah. And Harriet and Matt dating history is going to change a lot. I don't know if it changes as much as um, D.L. Hewley's backstory, but there's not a good... The, the show Bible for this show is questionable. <laughs> so yeah, we might have already fired Judd Hirsch. 
and Amanda Pete tells Stephen Weber he's going to hire she's going to hire him back and they have a like little standoff but then you know he's supportive of her while still being a dick so you know it's Aaron two sides of Aaron Sorkin's you know brain telling him what and, to do and so they introduce Sarah Harriet who is uh Sarah Paulson's character and I have this one note like repeated three times in my notes, which is Sarah Paulson's character is religious, you say. Because they they <laughs> hammer yes. that nail so hard. And it's so like like the first time it happens, it's like, okay, she's religious. You just needed to get that out there, that's fine. And then they have like this chud walk up to her and make fun of her for it. I'm just like, okay. That's weird. It's weird that you're doing this oh, again. Yeah, <laughs> Okay, when that guy makes fun of her, that was the, like, so I, you know, I think we talked about this a little before we started recording, but or, or maybe it wasn't, I, my brain's mush, <laughs> but uh, the, the whole, like, nobody actually talks like they, like, characters in an Aaron Sorkin uh, script ever mm-hmm. do, like, I'm usually fine with that, like, I can... I can accept a, like, heightened sense of drama. Yeah, I, I can accept stylized dialogue, production. yeah. Yeah, but this guy, who uh, he's he's one of the cast, he's one of the Studio sixty cast members. Uh, I don't know his characters. I feel like he doesn't show up. Uh, Does he show? Yeah, I feel like he doesn't okay. show up a lot. Yeah, it's Nate Torrance. He comes back later, but yeah, yeah, he he doesn't get a lot to do. But yeah, like this speech of his where he's like, "Did you not pray hard enough?" It's like nobody talks like that. <laughs> nobody not even like yeah but it's probably based on somebody who worked on a show with christina applegate and you know aaron sorkin was kicking it to to a friend yeah that is i mean that's also an iffy scene because it's it stands out now the second half of the episode like ooh, the the gear like the first half of the episode with judd hirsch going off with Timothy Busfield, who we didn't even talk about doing the, you know, this is the behind the scenes of making a live live television show in the modern. Oh yeah, age. they have this really. Go ahead, sorry. Then. Oh yeah, and then uh, Amanda Pete and Stephen Weber being the executives, you know, all of that's like really tight. As soon as we get into the introducing the cast this episode and with Matt and Danny, like it just starts getting so much less like it gets so packed. It gets bogged like, down its own nonsense. Well, the, yeah. Um, the The problem is that, so all the executives are just different. It's just Aaron Sorkin wearing different hats. Matt and Danny. Exactly. Matt and Danny are basically just Aaron Sorkin wearing different hats. So they're still kind of working, but the rest of the cast are not Aaron Sorkin. So uh, he doesn't know how and, to write. That. Yes. So he's got to, like, write, and I mean, like, it's probably the most interesting thing about Studio 60, at least as far as I've rewatched it, is just how uncomfortable he is and how he gets eventually more comfortable. But, so he's got the black comic who doesn't have an analog because when's the last time Saturday Night Live had a, I mean, it's like if Eddie Murphy were in Saturday Night Live in the 90s or something at that peak mm-hmm. of popularity that's dl hewley nate cordry is the funny white guy who i feel like he that's i feel like there's it. 
I mean, he's I feel just... like he's intended to be kind of like a Mike Myers analog, but he doesn't really do a lot with it. And there's one. Yeah, and it's also yeah. He his character's also weird because he's supposed to be like you know he's one of the big three. He's like one of the the big like the the popular like actual names from the show, but the way he acts is like he is just like some newbie who like just yeah just he's like a little set. kid and there's yeah. there's one other male actor um i forget the name of the actor uh he was on he was yeah, on he was on the big he was on the big bang theory and uh much more importantly uh, he had a two-minute cameo in a serious man um oh uh I, I simon helberg um, yeah i of course yeah. know him as moist from uh, um dr horrible single there you <laughs> go um so that's who i can't not think of him as yeah whenever i see whenever i my my partner's mother liked to watch the big bang theory whenever i used to see him on screen i just see him in um a serious man going look at the parking lot <laughs> but so he i don't i don't want to get too far ahead because it's been a while since i watched it but i feel like he was intended to be a dana carvey analog but they never really decided what they were trying to say about dana carvey or like what they were doing with him. Yeah, I mean, there's that too. Yeah, we we're gonna have a lot to talk about. I think in three episodes with how they actually show the show being produced. Because I just got through a few, and I'm just like, okay. But then Sarah Paulson, and so this is Sarah Paulson before any of her Emmys. So the, the question I had at this point, because and... we're gonna skip ahead to the end, so that I can address this point. So. It turns out, like, the reason they broke up is because Sarah Paulson and uh, Bradley Whitford's character, um, Matthew Perry here, sorry, um, like, they're, they're the same human being. They're, they're, what's his name, at the end of Akira. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're, um, they're two sides of the same thing. Um, yeah. The reason they broke up is because she went on the 700 Club to um, promote an album which you know what yeah i'd be pretty pissed too but the question i have and i want since you two apparently know more about celebrity gossip than i do was sarah paulson out at this point okay because otherwise i was like kind of like it's kind of weird that you have one straight white dude being written by another straight white dude dressing down the actual queer person for going on the 700 club (laughs) but if she wasn't out at that point i can't i can't get to yeah no she wasn't out at that point um, and looking, and she was doing <sighs> Lifetime original movies at this point in her career. That's a shame. I love, so I love Sarah Paulson. She had, she, I, she's amazing. Yeah. yeah. So like, that was like the big thing that was, I was like, holy shit, it's Sarah Paulson from American Gothic. This is amazing. But yeah, so she's there to very much like jeff daniels being a classical republican in um (laughs) newsroom she's there for aaron sorkin to be like no i can say christians are good people like look at her she's wonderful well oh boy jeff i don't want to get into jeff jeff newsroom and and how he's actually just aaron sorkin's politics uh but yeah well true yes but I, i don't know what um like Okay, so Sarah Paulson's character is supposed to be, or like she's sort of an analog to Kristen Chenoweth, who had uh, she 
she was in the West Wing. She was dating Aaron Sorkin for a while, and they broke up. But I don't know if they're, like... I, I actually don't know what the, like, gossip is around, like, why they broke up, and if, like... Yeah. If her According... going to the 700 Club is an analog to some real thing. I mean, it, it lost her gay fans, I guess, oh. at the time, but it doesn't seem to be involved with their so... breakup. So it's more like Aaron Sorkin being, like, you know... Flipping her off, so, and so, it on, so Chenoweth did again. actually go on the Seven Hundred like, Club. Kristen Chenoweth did go on and sang to promote an album. Oh, that's rough. It looks like oh. that's rough. Oh wow. Okay, so so this isn't even like this isn't even uh, an analog for it. It's just literally what happened in his relationship. <laughs> what a yep. piece of it's shit! Like, it's God. like that yep. one time where we got to watch Kevin Smith like write a movie about his breakup and then cast the person he broke up with in his movie. I'm like, wow, this is really uncomfortable. <laughs> yeah. My they God. weren't broken up yet at that point. It just didn't work out after that. <laughs> they were still together when, when Chasing came Amy out. came out? Oh, that's... E- yeah, they were oh. still together. They did oh, the press no. tour oh, as a couple. I wonder... Yeah. Oh, oh, I no. oh. Oh no! It's even yeah. Oh, it's I even could worse. never. Yeah, uh, I could never yeah, make a movie like that about a partner. Yeah. Much le- like if I had to watch a movie that I made like that with a partner, I would die. I would will the earth to swallow me whole rather than sit through that. <laughs> yeah. Ah, that that also makes me reminds me that the director's cut of Jersey Girl still hasn't come out with Jennifer Lopez re-added in. But anyway, I'd I'd watch. Speaking of the mid-aughts. Yeah, the mid-aughts were such a weird time yeah, for culture. Yeah, I mean, that'd be amazing. We're, we're gonna, we're gonna um, get, I feel like they, they don't really address it at this point, because as I said earlier, like, not actually a lot happens in this episode. Like, they rehire Danny and Matt. It turns out that Danny can't go direct a movie because he failed a drug test. Um, which is a yep. weird yeah. plot thread. Um, and the fact that, like, Nobody knew about it, and then Matt like tells everyone as part and during a negotiation, like, "Wow, what a piece of shit! Oh. What a piece of shit!" It's... So I, I think that's kind of funny, though. <laughs> that joke landed I mean, for it... me. That Matt, if Matt is an idiot and just shows all of the cards <sighs> because he has no idea what's going on. I feel like if the show was more of that, I'd like it. Yeah, more, yeah. If it was more overtly a comedy, yeah. I. Because that's the thing, like, people tell me it's a comedy, but it doesn't feel like a comedy. It is not... Oh, no, yeah, this is no. a drama. It just, this, it, is, yeah. this is this drama is totally, about this comedy. Is, like, uh, and so, yeah, I mean, this so one is... of the things that I find so fascinating about it is, like, I when I started planning this podcast, because I, I remembered this vaguely, so I went back and checked on it, and everyone was, like, expecting this to make it like, go the distance and, like, 30 Rock to lose and die after, like, half a season. Meanwhile, this got, like, 20 episodes and flopped, and 30 Rock went on for seven seasons. Yeah, but this one costs Yeah, that's the thing, like, 30 Rock actually did worse at the ratings, but it was just cheap to make. Right. It was just cheaper to make, and they were hitting the same demographic, they were hitting the same advertising demographic. This was... You know, during the era of the office stays on the air because the ad spots we sell on that are the most. That's like what 
30 Rock. I mean, this actually comes up in Studio 60 about how important it is to cater to uh, the Esquire readers over, you know, something Mm. else. Like, that's probably talking about the West Wing. Because that's how West Wing stayed on for the for, through the rocky seasons, was it you know they'd had the richest viewers, the wealthiest the, viewers. The, and NBC had a bunch of shows. And it can like turn that. out that literally millions of people are watching about it, and the TV stations will never know because the way we count ratings is absurd. <laughs> I mean, that's the other thing is there's a thing about the shares in here, like when they're introducing Jordan and I'm just like, you really should have explained this if you wanted to throw like it, the jargon is not, you know, give Ed Asner something better to do than jargon. Like, but okay. So they rehire Matt and Danny because Danny did Coke, but he's back in, he's back in, um, <clears throat> he's back in the program. He's got seven days sober. What else? Um, Matt and Harriet are going to get along together because they have a talk with a very awkward closing where it's just like, that's the moment where I was the first time I watched this again, I was like, Oh, I really hope Matthew Perry gets better in this because I'm going to have a hard time if this is how good he stays. But, and then they play under, there's also going to be the, the and they play under pressure for some reason. Because it's it's, it's, it's also, a great song, it's under pressure, and they yeah. could afford it. This is uh, yeah. number. They, you know, they just have infinite money to spend. So why not just buy a Queen song? Right. <laughs> why not just, I mean, it's just play, like... play play the most on the nose uh, music? Our characters what, what sure do you are think's... under pressure now. What, I mean, like, what's going through Aaron Sorkin's mind at every minute of every day? Like pressure. There's some rousing song about how great he is playing through his head. And like, how he's going to overcome obstacle to achieve and, and save the world through entertainment. Yeah, they, they kind of like... I feel like the ending of this episode is sort of like indicative of how the show is going to move on. Because they have like three options for endings and they try to do all three of them and thus they don't really do any of them. Like there's this, yeah. When there's they... this running subplot about the the dude who's in charge of the feed on the live show who decides not to cut Judd Hirsch, um, having a breakdown off, and whether or not he's gonna get fired, which is such a strange subplot. Yeah, and it's it's uh, um, what's his name? Uh, Timothy Busfeld. Timothy or, Busfield. Yeah. yeah, and he's 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 a great actor. I I really like him, and it's. It's also funny, like, coming in from um, the West Wing, where, like, he's a recurring character on the West Wing. And so, like, the subplot where they're like, oh, are we going to fire him? It's, like, just sort of, like, lands flat because it's like, oh, this isn't, like, this is an actor I recognize as being, like, uh, like, this is a guy who's worked with Aaron Sorkin before. And there's no way Aaron Sorkin's going to get rid of this actor. <laughs> Like, I don't know. Was this after the shield? Um, when did the shield come on first? When did 
The Shield started in 2002. Yeah, so there was the precedent of introducing a named actor for your pilot and killing them off by the end to screw with everybody. I mean, that's that's a decent. Yeah, it's a decent enough gimmick. I don't know if Timothy. Busfeld I don't know though. Like, I don't know if Timothy Busfeld is like a popular enough name though. It's more of like a. Well, he's as popular as Reed. I think that was more. He's a. He's a vat. I think that was more what the Judd Hirsch bit was like. Oh, it's Judd Hirsch, yeah. and now he's yeah. gone. Yeah, that's. And true. now he's gone. But um, yeah, just so many endings because they've got a. Yeah, the Timothy Busfield, he just gets thrown in there at the end. They sort of literally close him off in a room for most of the episode. Okay, sit here until we can get and back then, to um, And then they... Yeah, and then just like, why did you forget about him? And then I guess if it's only... If they haven't even started running the West Coast feed by the end of the episode, I guess, you know, we, we should know in our heads that it's only been a couple hours. Um, so we've got the Harriet Resolve. We've got... Matt and Danny having their first heart to heart, which isn't amazing uh, <laughs> either. Yeah, because they're not great. They're not great yet. I'm just sitting there. Yeah, I'm just sitting there going, yeah, but Aaron Sorkin doesn't have anybody like this in his life. Like Aaron Sorkin, you know, regardless of the director of the episode that he brought with him or whatever, he doesn't think that way about this guy. Like, come on. But, of course he doesn't. But Aaron Sorkin has Aaron Sorkin to rely on. So it works. He's the only man who could match up to Aaron Sorkin. True. Aaron Sorkin. Aaron Sorkin. But yeah, and then they go to do to give their speech to the crew about their new Oh, oh, I have another note here, which is when he's like going through the um the backstage after he's been hired, one of the stagehands says, "Are you coming to save us?" It's like, yeah. Uh, oh, uh, yeah. And the entire audience just um, groaned all at once. Uh. And it's Merritt Weaver who isn't on the show anywhere near as much as she should be. And then they go to give their speech yeah. to the crew, and the episode cuts to black because, of course, it does. But, like, no, choose one of those things. This is this is the beginning, or one of the first. Um, <laughs> first times this uh, trope will appear where uh, something wonderful happens and we don't get to see it because it, it's too much ha- hassle to uh, actually write yeah, that part out. Visualize I forget, it, yeah. yeah. So, That's the uh, whole I forget show. What er- you, you don't need to see what the speech we, we is. We see bits of the sketches they're writing are, um, and they all they uniformly look terrible. And I forget like exactly how he phrased it, but I remember reading an interview with Sorkin where he said like, no, they're like dress rehearsals. They're not supposed to be good. I'm like, then just don't show us it. Write good <laughs> sketches or, or, or like make them intentionally bad. Like 30 right. rock. We're, we're going to show it to you later. Yeah. You know, like this is, uh, you're, okay. it's, it's the, like, not to, like, I don't want to uh, harp on the comparison between Studio 60 and 30 Rock too much, but, like... I do. I think this is the central, like, reason that Studio or Studio 60 doesn't work, but 30 Rock does, is 30 Rock doesn't take itself seriously and is, like, totally fine with just being like, oh, yeah, this this show sucks. 
uh, everything that happens on the show is supposed to be bad, and you're supposed to be laughing at how bad it is, uh, which is a way easier trick to pull off than this than what Studio 60 is shooting for, which is this is the this is the generation defining uh, comedy that's happening, and like if. If, if that's what you want, then you have to follow up on that. And, hey, uh, Aaron Sorkin can't. Well, that, that more than anything is what well, I think the difference is. Because Tina Fey actually had worked on SNL. As had, I think, Tracy Morgan did, too. And so she was under no impression, under no illusions that SNL was, like, this generation-defining piece of importance. He's like, no, it's shitty and stupid and it's stressful to make and I hate it. And so that was the joke. Sorry, I interrupted you, Andrew. Yeah, it's... Yeah. Um, I can't find it, but one thing I always thought would be interesting would be to know how... When they shot the pilot for Studio 60 versus when they started shooting the show. Because it premiered fall 20, 2006. So I, the pilot was at least done by that spring if not earlier mm-hmm. so that's one of the other interesting things about how you don't meet much of the supporting cast if you look in the background you see the regular cast members who are going to show up but have no lines in this like ricky and ron are really are in a long shot of the stage that's... and you're just like they just made them come in and stand there like <laughs> that's really interesting that they actually like have all oh, and they're those not even minor credited. characters in the pilot and managed to bring them like bring those actors back because that yeah that's a mm. thing that happens like all the time in pilots is that like yeah you just like you know you cast a minor character with whoever you can get and then like half a year later when the show actually gets picked up you know half a year if you're lucky when the show gets picked up that person's gone they they weren't you know yeah they, they're they didn't. Uh, they weren't putting off other work to be uh, background actor number seven. Yeah, something like right. eight. So, this, so ahead, yeah. I wondered. Yeah, this must have been picked up pretty quick then, uh, if they were able to keep every or keep that many people on. Well, I feel like I'm looking at the cast list on IMDb, and um, I feel like one of the assistants, the one who calls in the big three, I feel like she was supposed to come back. But didn't, and then, um, yeah, standards and practices guy never came back. They kept Simon Helberg and Nate Torrance for this rest of the season, or at least the beginning of it. But the big problem is, and we'll get to it next week, but one of the major supporting characters is not on the pilot or ever mentioned, but she should have been. Which one's that? Uh, Jeannie. Oh, yeah. We'll talk about we'll, it next we'll talk, episode. We'll talk but about like, her. It all hinges on Jeannie, but she's not in this, and she's never mentioned. They mention Ricky and Ron, um, and that's those guys in the long shot. Like I, you know, Evan Handler looks like anybody, any bald white guy, but the other guy, Carlos Jacot, like he looks like himself, like, and that was him in the shot. So I don't know if they went in and shot it later and inserted it, but, and then, because one of the things is, is that 
they spent how many million on that set? That was one of the other big deals was, is that NBC paid for Sorkin to build whatever set he wanted. So it's just like, there was no way they weren't picking this up just to recoup the initial. I I think that, so one of my favorite production stories. Yeah. And I feel like, um, um, Aaron Sorkin going into this definitely had like the sort of weight behind him that he, he definitely could have pulled something off like that where it's just like, Hey, uh, you're going to give me whatever I want and I'm going to make this show. And they, you know, and you can, you can float it just on my name. What I can't figure out and I can't remember is how did he get away with that? In 2006, he hadn't been on West Wing for at least a year, maybe plus. Like, he'd had the gotten busted in the airport with the drugs. He apparently was fighting with NBC News. Like, then all of a sudden, they just turned around and gave him this show. It didn't he? I thought that he came back for the end of West Wing. Nope. He cameoed on the last episode, but he did not. He's never seen any of the episodes that he did not write. And he didn't have a movie produced during this time. Like, if you look at his bio, it's just like he disappears until October 2005 when he started circulating the pilot episode. NBC bought it a week later. Okay, so I guess they shot it at the beginning of 2006. But maybe that was just NBC wanting to give, you know, what's-his-face, Matthew Perry something to do. Maybe uh, maybe the whole, like, uh, Jordan knowing about the cocaine thing is more of Aaron Sorkin <laughs> telling on himself and it's like yeah Aaron Sorkin's got some inside knowledge on some guy it's like uh, I it's, know you were doing cocaine and you're gonna give me the show like, because I know I mean this was 2006 so Friends wrapped in like 2004 right uh, when, was this when did Friends wrap let me see Friends wrapped May 2004. So this was... This is like two years after that. So I, I think that one of the actors, probably Matthew Perry, was like throwing his weight around and made them like... Or like once he signed on to it, they're like, oh, well, Matthew Perry, he just got off that sitcom that was really huge despite being significantly yeah. less funny than Seinfeld. So I'm sorry. That's an old grievance. Um <laughs> Why do people compare them? They're not similar. Uh, um, so maybe that was it. Maybe they were banking off Matthew Perry. Uh, or to or to quote I the, the like... PBS comedy, the PBS educational series, The Chappelle Show, cocaine is a hell of a drug. <laughs> I mean, Amanda Peet was basically a movie star at this point. Um... Bradley Whitford was looking for, you know, the lead bump up. Yeah, I mean, it's it's just kind of weird that they just did it. Like, there was an intense bidding war. Oh, well, this is a sign of early internet popularity. It, it 
received many online mentions or the most online mentions and positive sentiment of any 2006 show. So they must have. Okay. (laughs) I I mean, it's, it's it's so weird. I'm like, I remember being really excited, but I don't remember why it seemed like they were. They, They hyped it up pretty hard. Like I recall them hyping it up super hard in 2006. They did. When did ER end? When did ER end? When did Were they out of ER end? No, ER was ER ran for forever. So they must have just Yeah, they they must have just wanted a West Wing replacement and thought that this would have done I mean, it. NBC spent most of the 2000s up till now really just kind of not being certain what the hell it's doing. Um like NBC's major lineup after Friends ended was The Office. Like, The Office kept the entire network afloat to the point where they kept stretching it out long after it should have ended. So, I don't know. Yeah, maybe they just thought it was going to be their next West Wing, or maybe they didn't realize how expensive it was going to be. West Wing was very expensive, though, right? Yeah, but I don't think it started very expensive. It, West Wing earned its keep, I think, was the... West Wing also got... Um, West Wing got a lot of like love from... Um, like, it got a lot of love because it was like a big, important show. And like uh, a lot of... like people in Washington actually really liked it because there, it was like, you know, it's like one of the only uh, pieces of media about Washington, D.C. where the people in Washington, D.C. are not depicted as the monstrous uh, nightmare people that they really are. Um, so, you know, it, it got a lot of love and support from the from that group. I mean... That helped it a lot. I mean, if we want to just go to Occam's Razor, the simplest explanation is that a bunch of TV executives saw a TV show talking about how important TV was, and they're like, yes, yes, fund it. Oh, I I feel like if... But if that were the case, I feel like it would have gotten two seasons. Yeah, well, you know... I started started to say this earlier, um, but... One of my favorite production stories of all time is there's an episode of the X-Files from the first season where they're like, okay, we've gone over budget on some of our episodes, so we're just going to do a nice, calm, low-budget episode. Most of the episode's going to be like stock footage of spaceships taking off. We'll just, we're just going to build a NASA, we're just going to build a NASA set Oh, wait, NASA sets are the most expensive thing in the world, and it turned out to be the most expensive episode of the season. <laughs> so I think that that's basically what that's happened awesome. with Studio 60. They thought, eh, how expensive could it be? And then, like, six months later, they got the budget. I'm like, oh, my God, how is this costing us this much? <laughs> well, we actually went and built a theater. Why? We have, like, 20 of them. It would actually have been a lot, but none of them are the Paris Opera House. No, we're, we're saving that. We're saving that for the best, the best line in television history. 
Oh, and I, I, I have a, a correction to put uh, on a note here. Um, uh, Aaron Sorkin actually did have two movies under his belt uh, even before West Wing started. Uh, so he had uh, A Few Good Men and The American President. Uh, he did. Again. Oh, yeah. Right, so that's, a, few, he had the cre- a Few Good Men would give you... No, he had... Yeah. Would give you a lot of weight to throw around. Yeah. Yeah, he had a lot of he had a lot of credit or street cred as far as that went, but I I just feel like at some point in two thousand five, all of a sudden he got to come back. Like his yeah, timeout was done. It, it it was definitely like uh he he fucked up big. And then he went into the wilderness, and when he came back, they acted like uh, nothing, like he was still hot shit. Well, yeah, but some of his fuck-up was that, you know, he didn't like Bush. So it's like, (laughs) by 2005, like, and I mean, that's in this, they're like, oh, look, he's not very, like, what, that's a joke anymore, that he's not very smart, and like, he fucked everything up, like... (laughs) No, it's not a joke anymore. It's like he got safe again because remember they depoliticized West Wing after he left. That was when they introduced John Goodman as the lovable conservative on West Wing. Oof. Well, I mean, even even before he left, the West Wing had a lot of like the good conservative characters, yeah. like. They that's, still had that's that. That's Kristen yeah. Chenoweth's character is, oh, she's the she's the good Republican. Oh, and then Matthew Perry shows up, too, it. as the... He is the... Later uh, comes in as a replacement of... Oh, that's right. He's the good Republican. But, yeah, Sorkin um, didn't do either of those, well, though. Like, well, that was all pre after Sokorn. Wait, I thought that... Ooh, I, I thought Kristen Chenoweth was uh, earlier on. It said that she's season six, and he was he left at season four. Oh wait, who am I? Oh, I'm I'm confusing I'm confusing my blonde actresses. Well, no, that's one of, that's one of the things I um. I mentioned this at the top of the show that like one of the things I find fascinating about single season TV shows is that they are always just a completely perfect slice of whenever they came out. Like, The Lone Gunman will always be a perfect slice of, like, 2000 to 2001 paranoia thriller. And so you can look at Studio 60 and you can see exactly where the political landscape was at in 2006. Like, everyone was starting to realize, like, oh, oh, we probably shouldn't have reelected that guy. Oh, that was a bad choice. But we were, like, (laughs) we were still kind of living in the shadow of 9-11. And, like, I... So we were right. all a little kind of like gun shy about doing any about making any like any comments that were more than like oh he's kind of silly, and especially artists were because when was the Dixie Chicks nonsense like two thousand three or four, right around there I think it must God, have been two thousands were oh okay so I'm so so the the blonde actress that I'm thinking of from West Wing is Emily Proctor who plays Ainsley Hayes. She's in the earlier seasons oh, yeah. before Aaron Sorkin leaves and she's yeah. she's the good Republican uh the good Republican liar who comes in. <laughs> is and she doesn't she like Bradley Whitford? Um I can't remember. She was definitely on so. it when I still watched it. Okay, but, but there, um, there yeah. is. Looking forward to uh, the next episode. Uh, she has a subplot involving uh, everyone getting together and singing uh, show tunes to her. <laughs> uh, 
They sing uh, Gil- yeah, they sing uh, I forget which one it is, but they sing one of the Gilbert and Sullivan songs to her. Boy. Oof. Yeah. All right. Well, I mean, if you're writing a TV show one a week, like you're gonna pad for whatever time you could pad for. <laughs> right. That that is another thing where it's like, I wonder if this happened to Aaron Sorkin. <laughs> did is is he just a big Gilbert and Sullivan dork or? Did he actually uh, have a thing where he sang Gilbert and Sullivan to someone once? I feel like Gilbert and Sullivan comes up uh, in Studio 60 at some point. Oh, uh, that's the next uh, episode. Oh my God. <laughs> well, I think that I think that, that is a All good right. spot Speaking to call it, next episode, then, since, yeah. so we can go watch yeah. the next episode. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, I, I, I realized Final now thoughts. that I never thought... Was this... I never thought of a way for us to end these episodes, so I think. Oh, I've got a suggestion. Hit me. Let's uh, let's go with uh, final thoughts in this episode. Did we think it was good, bad, stupid, etc.? I'll start it. You know, it's not terrible. It It has a like, it's janky and it's too self-serious. But as a pilot, it's not so bad. I. You could see, from this point, you can see this show actually being, like, a fun and watchable thing. Uh, so, Studio 60, Episode 1, Pilot. Pretty good. Yeah, I, I can... Tentative thumbs up. I can see why people thought it was a from, show with a lot of me. potential from the pilot, but that just makes it even more tragic, because I know where we're going. <laughs> Yeah, I think that uh, with well, I remember when I watched it, the things that I had problems with are still the things I have problems with now. Just back then, I just wanted to pretend they weren't there. <clears throat> but like, I'm 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 good with the Amanda Pete. Like, it's absurd, but at some point, I don't remember if it was during this episode or one of the other ones when I was watching him again, I'm like, Oh, Aaron Sorkin just thinks he's Frank Capra. He just thinks he's a modern Frank Capra. That's all it is. So with that lens, I can get behind the Amanda Pete and uh, Hey, just, you uh, know, unlike it, every other heterosexual man in Hollywood, the rest of it, the, the okay. head of NBC does not think she's adorable. <laughs> Charming. charming he does not find her charming i okay i actually found i i found her to be one of the most relatable characters this time around uh because just like jordan mcdeer i also suffer from terrible irony poisoning <laughs> and cannot stop making jokes about everything every situation i'm in no matter how serious they are <laughs> so yeah i found her to be a uh, an enjoyable a, a good character She's she's really who like struck out to me as the most relatable. Like, <laughs> but should should but stop talking, but never will. <laughs> you're relating to a, an aspect of Aaron Sorkin's psyche right now. <laughs> uh... <laughs> um, and then I've, just I've stared into the abyss um, too long. Matt Perry and uh, Bradley Whitford at the end of this one. It's just like you want to see how much sorkin's gonna push this because the last line from what is it is it from bradley whitford where he's like what if she's the real thing 
and then the music <laughs> yeah. has already started. Yeah. And you're just like, they're they're talking about tele they're talking about a fucking TV show. Like <laughs> if this thing had gone on for seven seasons, would the last episode have been them successfully figuring out how to make wings or something? <laughs> like this is the in, it, in season five of Studio Sixty, where they they finally put the skit together that can uh, bring peace to the Middle East. <laughs> <laughs> oh, just, oh, oh, yeah. Let's yeah. let's both sides see how funny the whole thing is. They'll all just lay down their arms and be friends. You have to let us show this skit in Palestine. It's gonna solve the whole problem. <laughs> Oh my oh, god. Oh no. Okay, we should stop now. Okay. Yeah, we stop. okay. We'll we'll be back sometime uh, soon with episode two, which is called um yeah. Oh god, I had my uh, list of episodes here. Uh episode two is called uh, The Cold the Open. Cold Open. Wait, do they do they have uh, if you made it this far, thank you for sticking thank around. Thank you for listening and we'll be back <laughs> um with more oh, we... studio will more podcast sixty on the sunset strip. That remote in your hand is a crack pipe.